What are students learning in the nation's first LLM level tax course on Opportunity Zones? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. My guest today is Jay Darby, tax partner at Sullivan and Worcester in Boston. And Jay also teaches at Boston University School of Law, where he has put together the first graduate school LLM level tax course on Opportunity Zones. Jay joins us today from his office in Boston. Jay, thanks for taking the time with me today and uh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, hey, how you doing there, Jimmy? <laughs> doing well, Jay, hanging in there. So, Jay, let's start by talking about that law school class on Opportunity Zones that you teach at BU Law. It's a unique course. Uh, as I mentioned, it's the, it's the first graduate-level, LLM-level tax course on Opportunity Zones. When did you first start teaching this class, and how many students have passed through the program so far? We had it on for the, um, uh, the summer of last year, and um, we had a good turn. I, I was impromptu. Uh, we put it on the, on the schedule, and I had 11 people sign up. Um, and um, they uh, all you know, kind of raved about the experience. What we did was, because uh, it's in real time, we actually had assignments that were, for example, uh, one of the things that the class did is we submitted uh, comments on the second set of proposed regulations that were due on July 1. It was right in the middle of the semester, so I gave uh, uh, each of the 11 students a specific topic to write about, or they, they selected from a menu and they each picked one of the topics. We had uh, 11 submissions. I made one as well for myself on behalf of the program in the school. And uh, we basically made recommendations on things that the IRS has specifically asked for comments on the proposed regulations. Um, other things we did were um, uh, answering some, some questions that were posted online at uh, uh, actually the Afternoons on Expo um, website. And uh, we uh, did a variety of other uh, um, uh, things were very, very pragmatic, you know, real-time uh, learning the law and actually responding and participating in the process of shaping the law. So it was a very successful summer, it was a very successful program. People learned a tremendous amount about it, and uh, we all learned together kind of uh, how to make the afternoon zone law uh, functional and effective. No, that's excellent. I, I commend you on the on the work that you and your students did over that, that summer of uh, earlier this year. Uh, and I want to ask you more about that public comment letter that you and your class prepared in a few minutes. Uh, I want to get back to that and dive in a little bit more. But but first, uh, I want to get a sense of what is the curriculum exactly for that particular course? What are the students studying? And and, and beyond the comment letter, what, what are some of the other assignments? Uh, the first thing we did is we um, read the law, and then we read the first set of uh, proposed regulations, then we read the second set of proposed regulations, and then we uh, uh, had... Um, Right. I, I, I tend to give multiple choice exams that are easy to, you know, you know, post and people have a chance to sort of test their, their kind of progress as we go along. Uh, we had a number of interesting writing assignments. Uh, one was, you know, drafting a, a qualified opportunity fund actual uh, document. Uh, another was uh, um, to uh, actually make the submission of the proposed commentary on the, uh, uh, the law. Another was um, I got asked to... Um, Answer some questions uh, by the Afternoon Zone Expo, where I'm one of the 
recognized you know, professional experts. And uh, we actually answered questions that people had sent in and you know, provided um, you know answers to the, the questions that were posted online. So it was a lot of fun, a lot of very valuable things in real time, really dealing with the law uh, in the in the process of being shaped and, and, and developed. And uh, we continue to learn a lot of stuff. My my course uh, uh, we begins again this semester is in January next month. Um, and we have uh, lots of other new students signed up and pretty excited about it. It's a very dynamic, important area because it's uh, one of the most uh, historic in tax incentives in, in U.S. tax history. And uh, it's got a lot of you know, controversial discussion, both pro and con. But the, the pro is it's a tremendous benefit for uh, taxpayers who want to go out and create um, wealth and opportunity and opportunity zones. And um, I'm busy helping people do that, and I'm very excited about it, and I'm very happy to share my expertise and my knowledge with uh, the, the students in the class and you know, bring in uh, a generation of people that are very knowledgeable and sophisticated in dealing with these issues. That's great. Let's uh, let's actually back up for a moment and, and get a little background on you, Jay, if, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us uh, what your level of expertise is and, and how you got involved in Opportunity Zones Law. Oh, I've been practicing law, you know, forever. I've been practicing law for 40 years, and I uh, uh, was uh, going through the 2017 Tax Act uh, when it was passed at the end of the year and looking at all the different new creative ideas, guilty tax, the guilty uh, tax system internationally and the qualified uh, uh, business QBI deduction uh, and uh, other things. But the, the opportunity zones was sort of quiet at first. It was kind of like a little bit like, a, like an iceberg. It didn't have as much visibility as it had heft, and got really intrigued by it, uh, began to spend time doing it, began to spend more time doing it, started giving seminars on it and you know, talks to different groups, and uh, people were clamoring eventually as they got more and more aware of what a incredible incentive this is and can be. And so uh, I've been part of the uh, uh, real estate roundtables uh, core group of you know, high-level practitioners, the uh, major firms and, and uh, accounting firms in the country are represented on this fairly elite small group. I worked with the ABA. I worked with, uh, obviously, the BU submission. Uh, I also have been part of a Novogratic uh, group that's put together by the, the Novogratic uh, accounting firm. It's uh, one of the leaders, maybe one of the top leaders in the area of uh, the opportunity zone. So lots of uh, involvement, lots of people, and having fun doing it. Very intriguing, very intellectually challenging, and stimulating and uh, lots of uh, benefits that a lot of people are going to be enjoying over the next uh, 10 or more years. Well, that's great. That's great, Jay. Uh, I, I had um, two faculty members on from the University of New Orleans and Tulane University a few months back on the podcast, and they had a, a an Opportunity Zones. Uh, they were starting to do some Opportunity Zones work with some of their students at their respective universities as well, uh, getting getting some courses off the ground. Have have other schools reached out to you about what you're doing? Are there are there any other schools doing this? Any other academic programs that, that you're aware of? Well, I know that uh, we presented uh, Christina Rice, who's the director of the BU program, was the one that was uh, gave the original blessing saying, hey, that sounds like a great idea. Why not be the, for the, the cutting edge in the front of the, the line in terms of uh, uh, major law schools uh, offering this as a uh, part of the curriculum. Uh, she and I were on the podium at the, at the uh, IRS, the, sorry, the Treasury's hearing on July 9th, uh, on providing commentary 
uh, on an all-day uh, venue that the uh, Treasury had set up on the, on the second set of proposed regulations. And there were some people that were literally re- representatives of the Treasury Department and the, uh, and, the, and the IRS and the other groups that were representing the government who also teach at Georgetown Law. I said, geez, we should have a, program. We should have a class, too. So I think that they've uh, uh, copied the idea. I know a lot of other people are talking about it because it's, it's obviously a major uh, part of tax planning in 2019 and 2020 and beyond. And, uh, you know, everybody's a little bit, uh, uh, you know, it, it slow. Well, I won't say slow. Everybody else is behind us. We're the first and the best, obviously, to be uh, uh, in this area. But we welcome the competition, welcome the recognition that it's a major part of uh, the American Internal Revenue Code and American tax uh, uh, planning at this point in time. I'm sure a lot of other programs will be looking to you and the precedent that you've set on Opportunity Zones coursework at, at the university level going forward. So let's talk about that IRS hearing. You've been involved in a lot of advocacy for this program, as you previously mentioned, and perhaps most notably, you testified at the most recent IRS hearing on qualified opportunity funds that you just referenced over last summer, last July. And you got your students involved, as we mentioned earlier as well. Your, ha- your class helped prepare the public comment letter that you submitted to the IRS. Can you summarize the key points from that public comment letter and your testimony, if you can drill into it a little bit more now than you, than you did in your previous response? Well, I think we, we covered about uh, 11 or 12 different specific topics. I wrote at great length uh, on the uh, specific topic of uh, Code Section 1231 and the, and the gain recognition from sales of uh, depreciable property, primarily, obviously, real estate that's been used in the business and subject to depreciation. And the fact that the second set of regulations had a very different rule for 1231 gain than they did for capital gain, they would they deferred it till you couldn't invest it until the end of the year, and then you had to net it against the other gains, and it wasn't it had very very different rules, which frankly aren't justified either by anything in the law for sure, uh, but even by policy uh, perspective uh, analysis, you'd still say uh, it doesn't make any sense. People think of capital gain and 1231 gain as is pretty much interchangeable. Uh, they do have some some nuanced differences in terms of how 1231 gain and loss are treated. 1231 loss is an ordinary loss. There are various tracking rules about you know back and forth between 1231 gain and loss that are uh, baked into the 1231 rules. And I just said it does, there's nothing that justifies the distinction, and it's really messing up the the, the marketplace because lots of people have 1231 gain. They want to invest it within 180 days of selling it. Nares is saying no. Yeah, wait till December 31st, especially if it's a year-end tra- beginning of the year transaction. I had people that sold businesses. They had 1030, sorry, 1231 gain, and they had capital gain from the same transaction, same uh, date. They wanted to reinvest both the capital gain and the 1231 gain, and you know, literally the 180 days ran out um, later in the year before you even got to 1231. So it, was, it, it just it underscored the the. The, 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 the practical as well as the uh, intellectual shortcomings of the IRS's position. Hopefully they'll respond to my commentary and other people's commentary and modify the law accordingly. And were there any other points beyond beyond the uh, 1231 issues that you brought up? Oh, yeah, we did uh, a whole wide range of, um, of uh, topics. We talked about uh, issues related to aggregator funds. How do you, how do you create a, you know, a a, a holding vehicle that can invest in multiple QOFs. The IRS had provided kind of a, a way to contribute them upstream. We thought that's 
somewhat helpful, but it'd be much better if they they basically uh, let us uh, treat all of the uh, allow an aggregated fund to make investments into a KOF. Uh, they have concerns that the law really doesn't uh, allow that, and so they're uh, uh, maybe not going to respond to that. But it certainly would make a lot of sense to make the law more flexible. It's hard to make the uh, the, the ozone law work with what we call an aggregator fund or a you know, a, a hedge fund, some kind of large investment fund, because uh, it requires gain to come in and go out. It has to be moved down at uh, a fairly brisk pace, and it just doesn't uh, lend itself particularly to uh, uh, having large funds that bring in money and, and aggregate it and invest in, in various other things. So uh, that was one of the um, biggest issues. We thought that the IRS did a great job on, um, uh, on, on leasing issues and basically identified a few tweaks that were of some consequence, but not, basically more or less said you did a great job. Let's stay with what you got here. That was basically allowing uh, lease property to be considered you know, qualified opportunity zone property that was eligible for qualified opportunity zone business property and valuing the lease at the at a discount of the lease payments. All uh, uh, you know, very pragmatic, good stuff that made it very, very possible to put opportunity zone businesses into uh, uh, the opportunity zone before they gave that guidance. It was very, very uncertain whether you could uh, ever qualify uh, with, a, with a substantial lease if the lease was going to go into the numerator as well as the denominator of a 70% test that's baked into the rules. And, in fact, it came out very, very uh, favorably. Uh, we talked about uh, vacancy periods. Um, the IRS had proposed a five-year vacancy period, and we said that, that doesn't make any sense for stuff that was vacant on the day that the law was enacted. Nobody's going to... You know, they have an issue about somebody intentionally becoming vacant for a period of time, and they don't want to encourage people to intentionally make property vacant so it qualifies for, uh, you know, special treatment is, is, is original use or placed in service for the first time. But, but by the same token, stuff that was already vacant uh, was uh, not being abused, and so we just said a one-year vacancy prior to enactment of the act would be evidence of it, of it being, you know, original use if you bought it and took it over. These are all fairly esoteric and technical uh, issues that were brought up. Um, the uh, uh, treatment of unimproved land was, again, a thing where I thought they did a great job of uh, mapping out some very practical rules. Uh, they were trying to prevent land banking. There was, a question, there was an issue about whether if you if you bought land for the exact same purpose that it was being used in previously, for example, if you had raw land that was being used as farmland, and you bought it and continued to use it as farmland, doing nothing other than just you know buy it, uh, that might not be uh, qualifying. So we proposed a uh, maybe a, a 20% improvement uh, to, to to avoid just pure land banking, but uh, a lot of different practical uh, proposals or ideas related to a variety of nuanced issues, all in the you know the very lengthy several hundred page uh, second set of regulations that were issued in in uh, April of 2019. Right. And yeah, your comment letter is 49 pages in length. I'm, I'm looking at it now on my computer screen, so I won't ask you to go into any more detail on that. But for our listeners out there, if you want to if you want to give Jay Darby's comment letter a more thorough reading, you can do so by uh, checking out the show notes page for today's episode. And I'll have those show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website at opportunitydb.com slash podcast, and you can dive into uh, the entire letter there. I'll make sure I post it up there. 
Okay, Jay, I want to shift gears now and play a game of stump the tax attorney. <laughs> so I, I, I want to ask you a few tough technical questions now. And with the caveat, of course, that we are recording this episode on December 11th, 2019, and we haven't been issued final regs yet, at least as of the date of this interview. And so some of this stuff is still left open to some interpretation and has not been totally clarified by the IRS yet. So with that said, I want to get to some technical questions that I've received from my readers and listeners over the past few weeks. So first question I have for you, Jay, if you could help me out here, is can a qualified opportunity fund invest in a qualified opportunity zone business that is not yet located in an opportunity zone, but is planning to move into an opportunity zone? Is there some flexibility there for that to be included in a 31-month business plan, perhaps? Are you talking about somebody that already owns a business outside the zone, they want to move it into the zone? That's correct. Yeah, in this in this particular example, yes. All right. I mean, I, I've had people that do it. I, I, I said if you move it in and spend a heck of a lot of money, you got to spend you know enough to uh, so that your existing tangible property base is exceeded by a ratio of seventy to thirty for the existing property base or more. So you have a huge expend uh, to expand it in the zone. Uh, you start off with with bad property, and you got to make you know put in a lot of good property. I've looked at the uh, the issue and, and uh, you can you can buy stuff that's been used outside of the zone, even used property. You can certainly buy anything new that goes into the zone. But I've I had misgivings about people that already own property outside of the zone and they're moving, you know, whatever the the tangible property is. So uh, I've got you know some. I think you can probably do it. You just got to be prepared to spend a heck of a lot to dramatically expand the business. It isn't just a call Mayflower and move it in. You got to do. Yeah, spend a lot of money to make sure you've got the uh, the tangible uh, property base covered. Sure, of course. And then, you know, following up on that seventy percent test that you referenced at at the QOF level, now the asset test is is relatively straightforward. And IRS Form eight nine nine six even helps you calculate the penalty that the fund would owe if you fall short of the fund level ninety percent asset test. But what about at the QOZB level, at the Qualified Opportunity Zone business level? If a Qualified Opportunity Zone business falls short of the 70% asset test requirement in any given test period, what happens? What's what's the penalty exactly? Is that specked out anywhere? And could, could it potentially completely blow the deal for that for that entire time period? Yeah. First of all, the 90% asset test is by no means um, uh, straightforward. They have a, uh, uh, a, a a series of kind of testing levels under the um, 8996, where uh, consistent with the with the with the the, the, the facially clear language of the legislation, uh, if your if your percentage in the first six months uh, on the testing day, which would be typically on calendar year June 30th, and then and then December 31st is the end of the second testing date. You take two percentages, you average together, average it together by dividing by two, uh, and if that comes out to be, you know, at uh, 90% or above, and they actually let you round up for 89.5 to 90, uh, then then you're okay. But the reality is, is that those those can be very weird numbers. If you have $10 invested in June 30th uh, in your in your QF, and all $10 are put into a, a uh, uh, you know a, a valid investment. And then you have $100 million in December 31st, and you know, $90 million is, is invested properly. You get uh, a number of, of 100% for $10 and 90% for $100 million, and you average them together. 
it's, it's mathematically very weird. They do weight it very clearly when you get into the if you if you don't make the uh, meet the uh, safe harbor test, which uh, frankly is pretty favorable because uh, the uh, the first six months cash you put in doesn't count as numerator or denominator. A lot of times you get zero over zero, and we sort of think uh, that means uh, it shouldn't be taken into account. You know, as, a, as, as either you know a zero or a hundred should be sort of disregarded. But um, uh, the the fact is, is that you get some very uh, nuanced, complicated strategies about how to deal with the penalty management at the QOF level while you're waiting to decide whether or not to invest at the QOZB level. Down at the QOZB level, <laughs> I look at the 90, the 70 percent test as a uh, a threshold requirement. It's the same as if you have more than five percent uh, non-qualified financial property or you, you fail to meet any of the other uh, you know requirements. Uh, I think you just don't have a qualified opportunity zone business, and therefore the investment in that partnership, wherever the, uh, the QSDB entity is, uh, isn't a valid investment. So, you know, I think it, it means you, you, obviously your QOS is going to have a zero for the investment in that uh, um, uh, that activity, and the penalty will be will be at the QOF level for the short term. But uh, it isn't so clear um, that uh, if you've blown qualified zone business status. Uh, that you just automatically get it back. I think that ought to be the right answer. If you if you uh, uh, are a qualified opportunity zone business and you fail the 70% test because you go down to 65, then you go back up above 70. So you meet the qualifications again. I think there ought to be you know kind of an ability to to to, to refresh or rehabilitate the status of it. But that isn't really addressed anything in the, in the regulations or the guidance we've had so far. So. You know, the, the short answer is if you can avoid blowing the 70% test and never never raise this question, you're much better off. Just always qualify, and then it's not an issue. Oh, of course, yeah. If you can stay in compliance the whole time, that's obviously the ideal situation. But I think if if I understood you correctly, so if you know, in year one you're at 75%, you're good. In year two you're at 75%, you're good. In year three something happens and you dip under 70%, you hit 65%, let's say. So then you're just the, is is the is the QOZB is just completely out of compliance at that point, and there's there's not a penalty at the QOZB level that that trickles up to the 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 QOF level. Yeah, well, the penalty is your QOZB isn't a QOZB. It doesn't meet the correct. Correct. So you've got an investment in something that's not a QOZB. That's that's a non-qualified. You've got then 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 your QOF has a bad asset there. Well, if it's the only asset, which is we are typically putting one QOF over over each QOZB, right. it's the standard. As I say, as I say, opportunity zone land is zone for two stories. You have a QOF on top of the QOZB is the typical structure almost every time. It's a right. split level. It's a two-story uh, suburban uh, house. So you, kind of, you typically have a QOF on top of a QOZB. If your QOZB fails the test, uh, you have zero invested in, 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 in qualifying property. You won't have any qualified opportunity zone uh, property, QOZB. Uh, and so you'll you'll end up with a with a with a hundred percent you know ninety percent penalty uh, on on your on your on your ninety uh, percent asset test of zero good good investment and ninety percent of the value of your total investment is going to be bearing interest at a six percent rate. That's a gigantic amount of uh, penalty compared to the re- the relative tax you're saving or tax benefit you're garnering. So. Uh, short answer is don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you can avoid it, that's understandable, of course. Uh, that, that's that's a one potential pitfall. You want to make sure that your QOZB can definitely pass that 70% test uh, in every period that it's measured. Are there any other 
pitfalls for investors or, or fund managers to be aware of and, and that they definitely want to avoid and anything you've seen in your experience that gives you pause or that you have to really caution any of your potential clients about? Uh, I think the um, um, starting point is, is you've got to have gain. Uh, you've got to treat the gain. I call it the fresh produce issue. Uh, once, you, once you have gain and you harvest your gain by selling stock, business, whatever it is, you're on this uh, uh, time, you know, you get the, 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 the stopwatch running. You got to move the, the, it's like I call it fresh produce. It's like you picked it in the field, you got to get it to market. You, know, you got to refrigerate it along the way. You can, uh, you got 180 days to get into a QOF, and then the QOF's got a specific limited time to get into the QOZB. And if it's in the QOZB and you've got a written plan, you got 31 months to spend it, but it's all being pushed along. We're finding you've got to have a place to land. If you, there's no point in, in harvesting the gain, throwing a QF, and then looking around and trying to figure out what to do with it. I've got lots of people who have done that, and it's a scramble. Uh, the pitfall that's happened is people put a bunch of gain into a QF, thinking they'd find lots of good things to invest in or, or, biz, or, or businesses to start, and they're not finding it. So what we're doing is I've got one situation where they put a lot of gain into, into QOFs, and they were going to have one investment that's going to be leveraged. You're going to put $10 million in and leverage it with, you know, 20 or something like that. The answer is we, we, we don't have any. Uh, we're, going to, we're, going to, we're going to put a full, um, uh, you, know, you know, zero leverage, and all the, all the gain goes into the QOZB because at least it's a qualifying investment. And essentially the, the, the economically rational leveraging relationship, it gets uh, pushed aside to, by the need of we've got to get money invested by a certain deadline into a qualified opportunity zone business or else we're, um, you know, in the penalty regime. And the penalty regime is something that's, it's, you know, I've been, I've been playing very complicated uh, analytical games with uh, uh, how, how exactly the 8996 works and um, what it means if we, um, you know, um, you know, invest in QZB and then what if the QZB ends up not being able to develop into the business we anticipate. All kinds of very interesting issues come out of this. and. It's pretty cutting edge because nobody's really gotten a heck of a lot of guidance beyond the fairly, you know, you know simple uh, mathematics that are set forth in the form. So it's uh, it's uh, it leads to the to the fact that you've got to um, really have a pretty clear plan uh, to make it successfully go from the field to the uh, into the you know, they say the harvest the gains, put it into the QOF, put it into the QOZB, and then have the whole thing work out timing wise and uh, structure wise. Right, I gotcha. So I, I may have sugarcoated it a little bit too much when I said earlier that the, uh, the the asset test is relatively straightforward, as you quickly corrected me on. So thank you, thank you for that. I I can I can see now that it that there are a lot of nuances to it, and there's there's a lot of finessing that needs to be done with uh, with paying attention to those penalties potentially. Well, I mean, the IRS said that if you put money into a qualified opportunity fund, uh, they won't test that money as bad. You know, counting against you if it's d- during the first six monthly period. Let's say your first six monthly period is January to June 30th. You put in $10 million. They're saying it doesn't count. It isn't a good asset or a bad asset. It's a, it doesn't count. So at the moment, your QF has zero over zero. And we kind of view zero over zero as, as, as a nullity as opposed to either zero or 100. Because um, you have, you, by, you know, if, they, if you disregard the money, the only money that's been put into the QOF so far, you don't have any fraction. Um, then in December 31, you've got to have that invested by at a, at a 90% level, uh, just to just to give you some ideas. If if we are uh, 
going to have gain that we harvest in April, we decide when to put it into the QOF. Uh, we might uh, uh, put it in on, in July, and then it sort of kicks your, your testing date down to next year because it'll be zero all the, for for all of 2019. Another idea. Yeah, it basically gives you a full 364 days, I guess, to get into compliance. Yeah, right? another idea uh, that's um, uh, you know I throw it out there. Basically, blinks and says, "Gee, I guess that's right." If I've got ten, um, hundred million, I got I got a hundred million dollars in a in a in a QOF that goes in in June, and I invest a hundred dollars in a in a qualified opportunity zone business just because somebody's got a you know an offering available. I throw a thousand bucks into it. Uh, the, the cash doesn't count, but my $1,000 investment presumably does, so I got 1000 over 1000 and I have 100%, right? Okay, it doesn't, doesn't have to be weighted. Got $100 million in the fund, I got 100 bucks in a in a QOF, uh, invested in the QOZB, and so my fraction is probably 100 over 100, according to what the rules are in the, uh, under, the under the form. Uh, so that means that on December 31st, out of my $100 million, I've only got $80 million invested because I got $80 million invested. I got 80%, and 100 for the first period and 80 for the second averages out to be 90. So I meet the um, uh, the safe harbor uh, on the first page of Form 8996, and I don't have to get to the second page. All kind of weird, right. weird yep. stuff. We don't, you know, that's really how it's intended to be. Uh, the uh, the actual penalty amount does it weighted by, you know, which What's your investment amount at the end of each month? Literally, very, 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 you know, sophisticated. But uh, they, they, they did that uh, on their own. The, the law itself is very, very sort of, you know, simplistic. It's, you know, average. Of, you know, take the average of uh, uh, six months, and take the average of twelve months, and average the two together mathematically. It doesn't weight it. Doesn't say how much is invested. You know, we weight it based on how much is invested. So uh, you get these very blunt. Uh, Opportunities to play some games. It it ends quickly, unfortunately. You um you know once once you start to count the money as is is an asset that's got to be invested, you got to get yourself up to the ninety uh, percent threshold pretty pretty quickly. And you sure as heck want to want to meet the safe harbor for two thousand nineteen because otherwise you you start running the, the penalties over month to month into two thousand twenty. Whereas if you meet the two thousand nineteen, uh, you know ninety percent threshold. Uh, you've got, you know, uh, at least until uh, June 30th before you, before you get even, even to a testing date. And, you know, in the second day, you know, we really push it off to the, to the full uh, next year, probably. Now, if you put money into an, into an opportunity fund in the, in the latter half of a year, or you've met the, uh, the 90% test, um, you've got, you know, uh, the, the, next, the next full year before you have an average to decide if you're, if you're uh, in the safe harbor. And if you don't, obviously, then you go back and, and uh, pay the interest penalty on a month-by-month basis. But it's, uh, it has a lot of interesting and nuanced uh, mathematical consequences I've been doing very, some very, very careful uh, thinking about. Another issue is, let's say you've got four, you got four, you got four QOFs, all right? Uh, do you want to have, and you've got three investments so for your four QOFs, you can get three of them invested at the 90% level, uh, but the fourth isn't going to be. Uh, what is the uh, the better alternative? Should you, should you make three qualify and one fail, or do you want to have them all fail by a little bit? You, know, you get very interesting uh, mathematical analysis on those issues as well. So. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's that's a lot to think about, and it's kind of an interesting concept that the eighty nine ninety six doesn't really take the denominator into the into a 
count, you know, when you or the way you word it was, it doesn't really weight the uh, the investment amounts in those uh, in the in, in each period. It's just a an average of the of the two percentages over the over the year. So that does give you a little bit of flexibility to uh, Yes, the safe harbor, as I call it, Jimmy, uh, lets you use you know completely unweighted amounts. Right. So uh, what I would probably do is put money into the uh, uh, you know if I have to put money in the first part of the year. Many people, for example, had to put money in by June 27th because 180 days from December 31st, the prior year was the was the deadline. Yeah, that was your that was your deadline to get in your gains from the previous tax year. That's right. And they said, well, I put the money in, but it doesn't hurt me because it doesn't count for this, um, you know, quarter or this this, this half year. Uh, and the answer is, yeah, but you know what? If you invest 100 bucks into a, into somebody else's qualified opportunity zone business, you know, eligible business, you know, go go off and find some, you know, some deal where it's, you know, you throw a few bucks into it. You have 100 divided by 100 and your percentage is 100 percent as opposed to a zero over zero, which we, again, think is probably a nullity. So that would have been the smart thing. Is that means that by the end of 2019, you only got to get 80 percent of your cash invested, not 90. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, that's, that's an interesting thought there. I hadn't I hadn't considered that before. I can tell you've thought carefully about this, as you as you say. Yeah, but, but high stakes issues for a lot of people with real money in the, in, the, in QOFs, and it's, it makes a difference. So, I've unfortunately, beat to death the. Uh, uh, the, uh, the 8996 issues, and I got you know done literally uh, penalty analysis about whether uh, if we've got if we don't have enough QOZ beta invest in qualified offering his own business property, you know, or, or QOZP, you know, either either qualified offering his own businesses or direct investment in, in, in tangible property, uh, where where and how is the best way to fail, and. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's there's some very interesting and complicated insights on that. So, this is this is why it's it's really important to get professional insight uh, before you dive into this opportunity zones world. Uh, get insight from from a tax attorney such as Jay or or other professionals out there. Uh, Jay, are there any other trends or insights? that you found interesting or that are worth keeping an eye on in the uh, Opportunity Zones world? I think the, uh, I mean, the area is very dynamic. I, I, I am, am finding that uh, uh, there's, you know, lots of opportunities and opportunities. There's lots of businesses where, where where the location of business doesn't matter that much. I've got, you know, guys with high tech uh, or, or sophisticated uh, businesses and uh, their view is, you know, hey, I can put it wherever I want, and I want to put it in, a, in the opportunity zone, so I'm just going to tell the employees that I show up there. Uh, there's all kinds of rules to try and make sure that the tangible property stays uh, in the zone. I mean, for that, for using technology businesses, I've told uh, a computer software company, uh, don't buy laptops for the um, uh, employees. The software company does not have a heck of a lot of tangible property. Now, fortunately, the the rent the property in the opportunity zone from, uh, and, and the ability to use the rented property is good property and the rent stream is discounted at a low rate, the AFR rate. Uh, it tends to make it pretty hard to screw up the tangible property test, but, uh, you know, pending that, uh, being locked in as, as final regulations and, and locked in, you know, permanently, um, I tell people I worry about, um, you know where the tangible property is in a, in a software company. If you don't count the lease it from an unrelated party, it doesn't have a heck of a lot of tangible property. 
I don't want the laptops going home with the um, being used outside the zone at, at the at the nearest uh, Starbucks, which is where the programmers typically want to go to do their programming during the day. I only want the the programmers to come to the office and do their work at the at the uh, office. Um, they got one software company that said, you know, hey, that's actually a really good thing. We find having our programmers all over in this diaspora of um, coffee shops around America or Boston area. Um, doesn't work that well. It's much better when they're in the same place, the same room, interacting with each other anyhow. So uh, we actually like this, um, the kind of discipline that the operating zone seems to re- reinforce and require. So I think those are all good things. That was an interesting concept. Uh, steer clear of the laptops and get some old-fashioned desktop computers and bolt them to the floor. Don't let them leave the, uh, don't let them leave the opportunity zone, right? Yeah, I've I've said, you know, buy them, buy them desktops. The, 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 you know, the, the, the guys are ballistic. I say, okay, just buy your own laptop. You know, <laughs> I want, I want, no, I want the company's laptop uh, at the uh, Starbucks. You want to log on with your own computer? That's your business. But uh, you know, and the other is, I want, I want everybody, you know, down, down uh, in the afternoons on at least four days out of five. Don't be working uh, at the Starbucks around the corner in the. In the in the non-opportunity zone area, you know, every day, because you can tell where people log on from, and it's it's not that hard to be able to demonstrate where people are actually performing their services in that kind of a industry and environment. So, you know, I say be, be you know, treat it seriously. Don't don't uh, don't blow it because your uh, your employees are lazy. Right. You want to make sure you stay in compliance with the services performed test within the zone. Uh, well, this has been great, Jay. You've given us a lot of good insight here during this uh, conversation. Thanks so much for being my guest today. All right. Excellent. So much fun, Jimmy. Thanks for getting me involved. I love your uh, your organization and your uh, uh, your uh, interviews are fantastic. Very helpful. Hope uh, people in America are enjoying uh, the good work that you're doing and in, uh, in uh, informing the world and promoting the Opportunity Zone area. Obviously, if they would like to uh, uh, reach me, they can You'll have information about where, I'm, where I am, I assume, on the uh, website. I'm Joseph Darby at Sullivan in Worcester in Boston. JB Darby at SullivanLaw.com is my email address. Great way to reach me. Phone number is 617-338-2985. Happy to help people. Happy to consult with people initially and see if I can help them, if I can help you. Um, delighted to help you uh, help rebuild America and, uh, and uh, make some money at the same time. That that's perfect, Jay. Thanks, thanks a lot. Uh, and for our listeners out there today, I'll have show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website, as I mentioned previously. And you can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com/podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Jay and I discussed on today's show. And I'll be sure to link his email address and and put the phone number he listed on there as well, and as well as the public comment letter that we referenced earlier. Jay, thanks again. This has been great. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.